join with the others in welcoming you who are here with us today. Those who are visiting with us, we're especially excited to see you. Some may be visiting online. We're thankful for your interest in these things that you want to study and learn more deeply the Word of God. If you're joining us later on online, please reach out and let us know. If we can help you in some way, we'd be glad to do that. We want to make sure that uh, we are serving Christ, and we want to help you to do that as well. So that is our aim as we come together to stir each other up for these things. Uh, today we'll be looking at this uh, part of Philippians chapter 1. Grady's been doing a series of lessons on, on fellowship and some on love, and uh, recently I was studying through Philippians with somebody, and this text sort of just merged those ideas together so well. So I, I, I hope I'm not going to over-preach some things that he's working on, but I, I think this is a, a very useful text for us to consider. And the language may be a little different for us when we think about love and the way that Paul has lined it out here. And so I hope this will be useful and encouraging for you as you're serving this week and serving the Lord uh, every day. So he starts with this prayer. In fact, he's starting out his letter to the Philippians with two prayers. Uh, this is a church that obviously he knows uh, fairly well. He was uh, there when, the, when Lydia was converted, when the jailer was converted, perhaps others. We know the story from Acts chapter 16, the beatings that he and Silas took and were put in prison. And then during the night, the, the Lord rescued them as they were singing and praying, and the jailer then uh, learned about Christ and was converted that night. So I imagine these people receiving this letter, there would have been others as well. Paul is writing and encouraging them, and he starts with these prayers on their behalf. The first is a prayer of thanksgiving in verses 3 through 5. I want to read that again. I just want to emphasize, I want you to hear the emphasis that Paul is giving here. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, but uh, the, the version Joe used as well and all of yours will have these sort of concepts repeated through here. Verses 3 through 5. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. The New, England, the new uh, International Version says, upon every time I remember you. Uh, thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I hope you see how much Paul is emphasizing and overemphasizing. He's using these superlatives, and I think it's because Paul himself has a superlative opinion of prayer. He exalts prayer in the life of the Christian and in his own life, and he exemplifies prayer so often his letters are filled with prayers for those who are receiving the letters. And here he begins with this prayer of thanksgiving. And he says, every time I remember you, I give thanks to God for you. What a great blessing that is to be the cause for thanksgiving in somebody else's life. And here's Paul saying to the Philippian brethren, you are a cause for thanksgiving every single time I remember you. And he says, always in all of my prayers, I remember you. And that's a lot of praying where Paul is remembering the Philippians. And so he just uses this superlative language here to express how much he is thankful for them, thankful to God for them, and how much he wants them to know that. We'll talk about that in just a second. He says he's praying for them all in every prayer. <laughs> he's making his prayer with joy. That's what's caused him to be thankful, is the joy that he receives from them. And the joy has come, and it's just sort of our tie-in to some of the things that Grady's been teaching, because of their partnership. Some versions have participa participation, others have fellowship. It's that Greek word that we've been looking at for fellowship, koinonia, uh, and it means uh, a sharing in. So he says, I want to thank God for you, and I do it often, because you have shared with me in the gospel from the first day until now. 
from the very beginning, this church was just different. They were willing to share in the gospel with Paul. He'll tell them later in chapter 4, as he's thanking them again because they've sent to his needs, uh, he'll, thank, he'll tell them that early on, starting at verse, uh, verse uh, 16, even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. In the beginning of the gospel, he'd said in the verse before that there were no other churches in fellowship with him except them when he went into Macedonia. When you read through the book of Acts, you see that's where he went right after he was in, in uh, Philippi. He went straight on into Thessalonica and the rest of Macedonia. And these brethren, brand new converts, were already encouraging him and in fellowship with him, perhaps sending to his needs, is what he's saying in, first, in uh, Philippians 4, sending money or sustenance for his needs as he went off to preach the gospel in the very next town. They learned early on how to be Christ-like in their sharing and their fellowship in the gospel, and Paul is so thankful. Now, it may seem striking as you're reading this. They know, and we know as we read on a little bit later, Paul is writing from prison with this great joy and this great thanksgiving. Sometimes, whatever our circumstance is, it's always the worst. That's, I'm an eternal pessimist in that sense. My wife always says, it's not so bad. Be more positive. I'm positive it's horrible, so that's, that's easy to do. But uh, I trust in the Lord that things are going well, but I tend to have a negative outlook sometimes on traffic or on whatever it is that I'm having to go through. Paul is in prison, and he's able to reach out and rejoice together with the Philippians. And it's because of them that he has real reasons for joy, even in the midst of a situation that would just be dire. <laughs> Uh, and so he's writing to them from prison and just expressing this joy and thanksgiving to them. Think about how that made him different in prison as well. <laughs> Not only is it an encouragement to them to receive a letter like this, but writing a letter like this would be encouraging to you as you're sitting in prison somewhere and unable to go visit the Philippians, that he can send them a letter and remind them how important they are in his life. Sometimes that's what we need to be doing. We need to be busy about serving others. Even if we can't physically go serve, there are other ways we can serve, and that'll change our perspective. It'll help us to have the kind of joy in Christ that Paul found even in prison here. It is also interesting that part of his ministry in, in among the Philippians began as he was there in prison, and so he's got a context to write about even this with them and to know that they'll be praying for him and praying for the opportunities he may have in prison since he had them there when he was with them. So he begins with this prayer of thanksgiving, but then he moves on to a prayer of supplication. A supplication is where you ask God to supply some need. That's the idea of a, a prayer of supplication. And so he's asking on their behalf, and he does so continuing with these superlatives. Let me pick up in verse 9. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What a beautiful prayer. It's succinct. He's the one who will tell the Thessalonians later on, pray without ceasing. You see how Paul manages to pray without ceasing. Look at the succinct and direct prayers that he offers up. He's asking God specific things, and he's remembering specific people and specific things about these people, and he, he lays it all out before the Lord. But this prayer is such a beautiful prayer. I want to get into it in just a moment. But first, notice something else here. Paul tells them that he's praying for them. And he tells them specifically what he's praying about. And he's telling them specifically things that he's remembered about them. He doesn't just say, 
I'll pray about that, or I'm praying for you. That's good. We need to be doing that. But think about specific things that we are praying for people or that people have asked us to pray about. Imagine the encouragement it is when we come back and say, I've been praying about this for you. (laughs) Isn't that encouraging when someone says that to you? I've been praying about this for you and with you. I know you're praying about it. We're praying about it too. What an encouragement. Paul is encouraging them from afar by means of this letter. The question sometimes comes up for me. (laughs) Are we praying as we ought to for our brethren? Great if we are. Are we telling them? (laughs) Paul makes a point in so many of his letters to tell them, I am praying for you. Please pray for me. (laughs) We need your prayers and I know you need mine and so I am praying for you. For you. Let's be more diligent about not only praying for our brethren, but also telling them about it with specifics, as Paul has done here. What an encouragement that is going to be if we'll do that for one another. It's a part of our fellowship, a part of what we get to share in as we petition the Father together on behalf of one another. But I think we'll see an extension of that, why Paul is praying these things, and what he's really asking for is going to be a key to getting them to do the things that he's doing for them and the things that they need. So let's go back and look more closely at this supplication that he makes. We just read verses 9 through 11. What is he asking for God to supply these brothers and uh, the Philippian brethren here? So he first says in verse 9, I pray for you that your love may abound. The word he uses here is a word that is superlative. It's a word that just means an overflow. Like you've you've got sufficiency, but then goes beyond that. There, It's never I think the opposite side of that, perhaps, is what Paul points out in Romans chapter 13 and verse 8. I want to look at the the way he uses this concept here. The same writer, Romans 13 and verse 8. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. I want you to think about that for a second. Don't owe anything to anybody except have a debt of love. (laughs) It is a debt that can never be fully paid. You might think, well, I've already loved that person. (laughs) I've already done, I've already already fulfilled that debt. Let's let's go love somebody else. Uh -uh. (laughs) That is a debt that you must always owe. Paul's saying, owe it. Owe that debt of love. And you just keep paying it, and you just keep paying on it, and every time you think you're done, give a little bit more. (laughs) Love must overflow, it must abound. Abounding, we think about that the cornucopia, the horn of plenty, that, that image that's so popular in Thanksgiving. It's not like, like one apple down in that horn. It's all this stuff that's flowing out of it. It's all over the table. That's the idea of something that's overflowing. My cup runneth over. We think about that from the psalm. We're not thinking God's just going to put a couple drops in there just in case I get thirsty. No, it's so much, I better keep drinking because it just keeps filling back up. That's the concept. God's love is like that. And it's what he wants our love to be. It's a love that's excessive. Are you overdoing it with love? No, you're not. (laughs) You might think you are. You're not. You can't overdo it with love. Do some more. Love more. That is a key. And Paul is getting to that with the Philippians here. Think about the expression of love and where it comes from. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19. I've just mentioned that this is, that's how God loves with this overflow. We're just going to see that laid out over and over and over here. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. So he's got so much love that he's able to fill us with love, and then it still overflows so we can fill others with it. That's where we learn from, is God, how to love, because he loved us first. In fact, you'll notice several times in several texts, 
But the focus is always, the standard is always the love of God. Look at Ephesians 5. This great text on the marital relationship. Look at verse 25. We, we probably have some of these memorized. Our, the husbands ought to at least by now. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It doesn't say love your wives as, I don't know, Elizabeth Barrett Browning wanted to be loved. You know, shall I compare thee to a summer's day or these poetic, romantic love? That's great. But love as Christ loved the church. It's the kind of love where you give yourself and then you give yourself again because the person still needs. And you don't ever say, oh, I've already given so much. <laughs> that person's just so needy. It's hard sometimes. <laughs> but love says they're needy because they're needy. I need to give more. <laughs> and God will give me the strength to continue giving. I'm not saying we need to be enablers and people doing things that are wrong. That's not the point. When people are doing things that are wrong and we're loving them in a way that's going to pull them out of that, that's what we need to be doing. Enabling someone to continue doing wrong is not what the point of love is. Jesus didn't come down and say, I want to forgive you of your sins so you can just keep on sinning. God forbid, Paul says in Romans chapter 6. That is not what it's about. He said, I want to forgive you of your sins so that you'll have a reason to stop. What a beautiful thing. If we love people like God loves... It's going to pull them out of themselves. It's going to help them to love like God loves. If we'll model what God has modeled for us as we love them. So somebody really needy, see to their need. <laughs> and if they're still really needy, go do it again. You're never going to fill up that need too much with too much love. That's what's needed. But you may help them to recognize what other needs are and begin to serve others in their need, which will take care of the part of their need. <laughs> That's what we need. That's the fellowship of love. In Ephesians 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Look at verse 33. Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So the wife doesn't have to love the husband? <laughs> that word respects there is the same word that's used for the fear of God. And I believe the point he's making in the text here is not that she shouldn't love her husband. It's that she ought to, in the fear of God, serve her husband. <laughs> and that is a loving type of service. That's a loving type of submission that's being, that's being asked about and talked about all through the text there. If she fears God, then rightfully she's going to submit to the service that's needed with her husband and with her family. The man will do the same. But that idea of fearing the husband is really a fear of God before the husband. And that's what we see in 1 Peter 3, as Sarah called Abraham Lord, as she submitted to him in the fear of God. That's the concept there. And so, uh, when we look at 1 John 4, he has taught us how to love because he's loved us first. He is the standard for love in our marriages. It's not what I feel about this person who, who made my knees weak when I first saw them. What about 50 years later? I'm still making your knees weak? That's great. <laughs> That's awesome. That's wonderful. But that is not the standard by which we love. There are going to be days when your knees are going to be weak because you're shaken out of anger. <laughs> Make sure you love. <laughs> Make sure that love is the overarching expression. John chapter 13, this is how Jesus said that people would know we're his disciples. And do we really think about this? Do we consider what this would look like if we were truly in the kind of fellowship that this kind of love provokes and, and, and leads us to? John 13, verses 34 and 35, again, look at the standard. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. <laughs> the high standard 
is the love of God. It's the love of Christ. And I want you to think about that. We, we do think about this, but maybe not enough. Consider the supreme power of loving as God loves. Think about several verses that sort of express what love does. Love covers a multitude of sins. 1 Peter 4, 8. He's talking about loving one another in that. Love covers a multitude of sins. When that person is over needy and I don't want to go and love again, then I go and love. <laughs> well, that person's done me wrong. They've abused me. They've used me too much. Love them. <laughs> Doesn't mean you put yourself in an abusive situation, but you love them beyond the abuse. <laughs> you love them and cover a multitude of sins in your love. Help them to come out of sin and then forgive them for their sins and love. Love is the fulfillment of the law. When the scribe asked Jesus, what's the great commandment? He said, love. <laughs> love God. <laughs> and love Him with all your heart, strength, soul, and mind. And the second, which he didn't ask about, but he got anyway for free, love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the great commandment. Romans 13 and verse 8, he said, love fulfills the law. He literally says that in Romans 13 and verse 10. Love is the fulfillment of the law. <laughs> Loving God and loving your neighbor, you've taken care of the commandments. They're just there to govern when people aren't doing what they're supposed to. That's the point of the commandments. It was brought in because of transgressions, not because people were doing what was right. Transgressions were there, and so the law needed to govern those back to love. Love is what motivated Jesus on our behalf over and over. We can see this. We had spent an entire lesson just talking about this. John 3.16, so well known, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son to come and die in our place. And then, as uh, Paul points that out in Romans 5, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for the ungodly. He didn't die because all of a sudden we, we were worth it. We weren't worth it. <laughs> and we can't ever be worth it. But he loves us anyway, and he wants to make us worthy in him, in the beloved. So that 1 John 3 and verse 1, John can write, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that He would call us the sons of God. He has brought us in because of love. It's the power of love that does that. If there's somebody you don't want to bring in, you don't think they have the right to be a part of your circle, love them. We don't have the right to be a part of God's circle. And He brought us in and He calls us sons, not even just servants, sons, because of the love He has for us. All of that is the agape, love of God. It's all the same word that's used here. There are different words for love. I think we're aware of that in the Greek, but all of these are agape. This is the kind of love that just gives itself for the benefit of others. That's what Paul's been praying about, that your agape may abound, may just be overflowing. But it doesn't end there. That's the beginning of his prayer of supplication. That's what he wants God to supply them with, is the ability to love like God loves. And so it may abound more and more. That's a great, simple phrase. And, and sometimes we'll say things like this, you know, to the max or you know, keep going. This idea, you can feel the progression in this kind of a phrase, more and more. And you can just add some and mores and mores and mores. You just feel that in the language. And that's what it's meant to convey. Once love has reached that state of overflow, once I feel like I've just given all I can give, if you're truly loving, then you can give more. <laughs> There's, it's just there. It's a never-ending resource. It's the debt we'll always owe, and we always have the resources to pay it with. God gives us that. In fact, in the text, Paul sometimes will call this the pursuit of love. It's more and more because we're still going after it, and then we're still going after it, and there it is, and we're going over there after it as well. Look at a few of these times when he brings that concept out. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1. 
So he's talking here about um, their dividing among each other, their divisions. Some, some are even caused by some of them having these spiritual gifts. He's saying the spiritual gifts aren't the problem. It's your abuse of them. It's your, it's your disdain for one another that's the problem. And so he says in chapter 14, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Then he explains why that's the important one here. He's going to be able to teach the others that you love so much and want to be doing the will of God. Pursue love, though. That's what you need to pursue. They're eager for spiritual gifts. He says, yes, but pursue love. That's what you need to be after. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and then 2 Timothy, he's going to bring up this same concept. And I just, these are beautiful texts when he's trying to help Timothy to build the right kind of character towards the ends of his letters here. 1 Timothy 6 verse 11, As for you, O man of God, what a great encouragement that would have been to hear from Paul. <laughs> for you, O man of God, Flee these things, all these passing things of the world. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. It's among the pursuits here of, of, of Paul for Timothy as Timothy's building his character. Pursue love, and I love the way he puts it in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He's going to say a very similar thing. But notice there's a, there's a context here. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Take somebody with you. Go together with others who are also pursuing love. This is not a, an, an individual pursuit. Pursuing love and righteousness and peace and all these things, we're doing that together together. That is the definition of a church in fellowship as we're pursuing the things that make for peace and righteousness and we're doing that in love. What a great blessing if we'll do that. So the question comes up, and Grady recently preached on this, do you love like 1 Corinthians 13? I'm not going to re-preach 1 Corinthians 13, but I want you to think about what's in that text. That is, if God, if we love because God first loved us and we look at that text, that's God's description of how He loves that's what he wants us to be like. It's read so often at, at weddings because we want to have that kind of romantic idea of this altruistic kind of love within our relationship. How long is it after the day of the wedding that a lot of those aspects of love are just tossed out the window? It's a beautiful piece of poetry, but that's not what it's meant to be. It's meant to be an exhortation to love like God loves. Do you love like 1 Corinthians 13 teaches to love? And I dare say there's not one of us here who can say, I've reached the overflow on all of 1 Corinthians 13. Every time I read that list, it's so convicting to me. There are parts of love that I just need to work on. As we'll do that, we'll grow in this abundance of love. We'll grow more and more. You think there's, there's a list of things to work on? You want to grow more and more in your love? Read 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 through 8 and grow, reach for each of those things every day. And God will give you the resources to make that so. Do you love like 1 Corinthians 13? So let's put that in the marriage context. Do you love your wife like 1 Corinthians 13 says you should love your wife? Do you love your wife, husbands, like Ephesians 5 says Christ loved the church? We've got a lot of work to do. You think about it a little bit further then. Do you love your enemies? Okay, so I've, I've got 1 Corinthians 13 perfected. I love my wife. I love all the church. I love everybody with an overflow. Do you love your enemies? <laughs> well, I know you're going to ask me that one. <laughs> what do you mean, do I love my enemies? Look, they're my enemies. Love your enemies, Matthew 5, verse 44. Those who persecute you, those who spitefully use you, do you love them? 
Paul did. <laughs> Jesus did. And that is our pattern. That's what we're trying to reach to. That's when love abounds more and more and more. When I see an opportunity that I can't love this person, it's an opportunity that I need to love this person. <laughs> That's what needs to happen. I can't forgive them. I'll never... Don't say that. God won't forgive you. Love them. That's what you need to do. You might not like what they've done, but you need to love them. And you need to be willing to forgive them for love's sake and for their sake that maybe they can be restored. We always are going to have more work to do in love. And so Paul says, it's my prayer that God will supply you with an abundance of love that you can pursue more and more as you begin giving it out and Paul's going to say later, you've given so much to me. I know you're capable of love because you're giving it to me. He's going to talk about two women that are at odds. He's going to say, I know there's love there because they've been great workers in the kingdom. Work it out. You help them, my faithful companion, whoever he is. Go help them out in love. It can be done because God has given you an abundance. That's what you need. More and more love. But here's where it gets interesting. Because he doesn't go where we might think he goes. He says that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So the love that God desires for us is a learned love, not a felt love. And I think sometimes that's where we get off the rails a little bit. I don't feel like I can love that person. Well, you can love that person. It doesn't matter what you feel about it. You love that person. That's what God said today. God has given us a directive of love, not a feeling of love. Now, there may be emotions involved. Paul certainly is overjoyed. And we ought to have joy as we love. We ought to have joy as we love our enemies because we see something they don't that's so beyond where they are and where we hope they get to. We don't want them to stay our enemies. So we take that, that full armor of faith, that sword of the Spirit is not to kill the enemy, it's to convert the enemy. Use the flat side of the sword. Subdue them with the truth, not cut them down. The sword will do that on its own. It is a two-edged sword that will pierce the very heart and distinguish between marrow, between uh, bone and marrow, between, between soul and spirit. God will do that work. But we take the sword with, with love. <laughs> That's part of the armor that we're taking out. So it's not a felt love. It's a learned love, which, again, may be part of the problem. We've been taught from our youth that love is a feeling. And so when it feels right, you'll know it. So we say, follow your heart. Jeremiah says, don't do that. That's disastrous. God says, don't ever just follow your heart. But that's what we're taught in our culture. How do you know it's the right one? You felt something. <laughs> There's a popular kid's cartoon that says, you zinged, whatever. <laughs> you felt it. <laughs> but that's, that's not the idea. You know it's the right one because they love God. And you love God. And you can work together to serve God. There might be lots of right ones in that sense. <laughs> God hasn't just laid out one person that's a possibility. Once we've made the decision, once we've committed to that person, there's one one flesh, but that's not something that happens beforehand, this sort of faded kind of love. That's, that's not at all what we're talking about. And that's not what God's love looks like. God's love is a learned love. So in John 14, verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll just feel like you love me all the time. <laughs> that's not what he said. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. What do you mean? <laughs> if you love me, you'll learn what I desire, and that's what you'll do. <laughs> that's the point. <laughs> You'll keep my commandments. He's already taught that though, hasn't he? This is what God's been teaching from the beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Notice the connection between love 
and commandments. I want you to notice this. It's very important. Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'm not saying we're going to keep the commandments perfect. That's not the point. The point is if we love the right way, we're going to desire to do the right things. We want to do what God wants of us because we love Him, not because we're just good at keeping commandments. That's where the Jews got it wrong. They could show off. They were, they were proud about their keeping commandments. We need to avoid that. But if we love God, we want to do His will. Deuteronomy 6, starting at verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Why? (laughs) Why bother with all this word stuff? Aren't we just supposed to love God? I I love God. I don't care about His word, but I love Him. (laughs) Really? That's impossible. (laughs) That's impossible to not care about His word and say you love Him. The more we know God, the better we can learn Him. Uh, We can can love Him. (laughs) The more we learn about God, the more ways we know to love Him. We've talked about this before. When you're first dating somebody, you can't stand to be around them, right? You don't know anything about them. (laughs) Yeah, you do, because you want to fall in love, so you want to know more and more that you can love about the person. (laughs) And sometimes you ignore things that are glaring that you don't want to hear about because they're not really good. They need to work on that. But all this other stuff sure is good. (laughs) With God, there's never that we've got to ignore this that's not good. Everything is good. The more we learn, the better we can love Him. Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24. He says, let the one who rejoices rejoice in this, that he knows me. (laughs) That's what he needs to rejoice in. He knows me, the Lord. Romans chapter 1 and verse 21, those who are under condemnation, those who have no excuse, although they knew there's a God, they did not honor Him as God. They rejected Him as God, and they became darkened in their foolish hearts. Peter's exhortation, the last thing he'll write, 2 Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It is so important that we know Him if we're going to love Him like we ought to love Him. And I believe that's why the doctrine that he teaches is so extremely important. Don't get the wrong idea from the class we had today that doctrine is not important. Doctrine is not where we begin. We begin with God. But if we love God and desire to do His will, we want to know what has he said? Deuteronomy 29, 29, one of my favorite verses from the Old Testament. I'm going to read it because I'm not used to the, to the version of the English Standard yet uh, to quote from it. But I just love this verse. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. God knows a lot more than we do and a lot more than he's revealed but he has chosen to reveal some very important things about himself and about us. And all of those things we need to know. We need to know it. If we're going to understand him, we're going to understand ourselves and our relationship with him. We talk a lot about the Bible being a love letter written from God. You think about Psalm 119. That is a love letter written to God. And what David says repeatedly, every single line in there is, Oh, how I love your law. And he just came up with so many ways to say that. Would that we had that same feeling, if you want to get a feeling of love. I wish we felt the same way about God's Word that David did. The more we're in it, the more we're going to learn how much he loves us and how much I can't wait to see what's he going to say next. What else is he going to reveal about his character? And as we're seeing his doctrines that that show us how his character looks in practice and in action among us, we need to respect that what he has said 
is what most closely reveals what he wants us to do. <laughs> That's it. It's going to reveal, reveal something of him as we practice it. And so we need to be careful not to just dismiss anything he's revealed as, well, it probably would be better this way. Let's <laughs> do it his way. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that's exactly what I believe Paul is getting at. God has not just given us some suggestions, sort of a loose road map that maybe can help us if it's really dark, but if there's a little bit of light, we can see our own way. He's the light. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and following, he says, As it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him, him. Think about that. God has prepared the secret things that belong to him. He's prepared some of those for those who love him. And he's done what with it? He's revealed them to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God, freely given to whom? To those who love Him. That's what He said, the verse, uh, verse nine. We impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. It is very serious work that God has done in revealing His will, the way He's revealed it. The stories that He chose to tell indicate something that we are supposed to learn from. The way He's revealed His will and the way He's laid out His doctrine talks about Him. David understood that. Why would he say, I love your law, talking about Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Exodus? Because he knew God's character was revealed through his law. We need to see that and trust that. And so the doctrine is extremely important. And we want to make sure that as we're loving him, we're looking to him and saying, what shall we do? Just as they did on Pentecost. All these things are important because they lead somewhere. Why do I want God to supply you with an abundant love that grows more and more, that that grows in knowledge and discernment so that something can come of it? There's a purpose behind it all. He begins that in verse 10. So that you may approve what is excellent. This involves testing. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, test all things, hold fast to what is good. You've got to be able to do that. Hebrews chapter 5 talks about testing things so that your senses can grow that your discernment and ability to do what is good and approve what is good over what is evil can grow. There's a need for that. But it's so much more than that. Approving what is excellent is so much more than just seeing the difference between right and wrong and good and evil. The word itself, excellence, excelling, means going ahead. I was going to put going beyond, but God says don't go beyond. I'm not saying go beyond His his will. What I'm saying is more and more. That word, that, that idea is excelling. When you get to the point where you feel like you've got there, there's still more to do. (laughs) None of us has been perfected yet. We're seeking that. We're seeking perfection from God. But God does not expect us to be perfect. What He expects us to be is people that that are excelling. He wants to perfect us as we reach to do more and more, as we constantly make progress. What is the mechanism by which that, that works? Look at Romans chapter 12. This concept is all over the Old Testament. We don't see it uh, as clearly perhaps in the New, although it is in the New several times. But this concept of burning away the dross. As you put the animal on the altar as a sacrifice, that animal then becomes holy. It's an animal that you had already set apart, that you already kept clean, that you already kept undefiled so it could serve as a sacrifice. But once it goes on the altar, it then becomes holy. It's been purified 
by its time on the altar. And so only people who are holy or clean can then eat from those animals on the, on the Pacific, on the peaceful sacrifices, and on some of the sin offerings. And so it's because the altar has made them holy. Romans 12, Paul uses exactly this image. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It is in the practice of holiness that we, that we grow. <laughs> it's so much more. Excelling is going further and further and allowing more and more to be burnt off as day by day we put ourselves on the cross, as Jesus would say, or on this altar of sacrifice, as, as Paul has put it here in Romans chapter 12. I want you to prove what is excellent. And to do that, you're going to have to have some notion of what is better and what is then better and what's more and more better, <laughs> the excellence that you're pursuing. And if you'll do that, if you'll approve what's excellent, there's a second step here. And so be, and he'll lay out two or three things that you'll become if you're working built up in love with knowledge and discernment, working toward excellence, it'll change you. God's Word will transform you because of His character expressed in the Word, because His desire that we take on the character of Christ as we practice His Word, we are transformed. That's it. It's not about obeying a bunch of laws. It's about loving God and doing His will so that He can turn us into little Christs, Christians. That's what the word means. He makes us into the image of His Son. And so in the practice of what is excellent, sanctification continues. We're laying on that altar. We're burning off the dross. Again, Romans 12, 1 and 2, we just read. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. They are struggling. Here's a church that many might have given up on because of all of the things that are going on. They're taking each other to court. They're divided over who baptized them. They're fighting over spiritual gifts. There is so much wrong at Corinth. And yet, Paul writes and calls them a church of God. And he writes and tells them all the good things that are going on among them, even though they've got all these struggles going on. And in chapter 6, starting at verse 9, he begins to lay out their situation. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. When we look at the Corinthian church and we see some of the mess that was there, we see in that list, there's some of those people still hanging around, right? But not all of them. And some of them that were one of those things aren't that anymore. They've moved a little further along. They've still got work to do. Don't we all? Don't we all? But as we're abounding in love more and more, and serving one another in love more and more. As we are gaining knowledge and discernment of God and loving Him as He deserves to be loved more and more. As we're approving the things that are excellent, leaving behind the things that are not, and letting God burn those out of our lives as we lay ourselves on the altar of sacrifice every single day before Him. In the practice of what is excellent, sanctification continues. Such were some of you. Even if you're stumbling, you were a person who lived in that. Now you've stumbled into it. Get up and walk in the light as he is in the light. And then 1 John chapter 1, verses 9 through 2, 1 come into play. If you're walking in the light as he is in the light, 
There is the blessing of this continued engagement with sanctification. 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Be striving for what's excellent. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he says, as we confess, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is a process of sanctification. It's not something that happened on the day I was baptized and I left it there. It is continual. And it's because there's a direction that we're headed. He wants us to be pure and blameless, sanctified for the day of Christ. We want to please the one who called us. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul talks about those who enlisted a soldier. And you work for the one who enlisted you, not for whatever your own pleasures are. God has enlisted us in his service, and we work for him. We want to please him. So be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, and so be filled with the fruit of righteousness through Jesus Christ. In verse 11, love that is expressed with knowledge and discernment will produce good fruit. It can't help but do it. That's God's plan. As we abound in love, and as we abound in the service that love brings, it will produce good fruit. Over and over, God brings out this concept. In Matthew 7, you'll know them by their fruits. He's talking about false prophets. You'll know they don't have the love of God because they're teaching lies. But those who have the love of God and are discerning and are seeking to serve, you'll see it in their fruit. In John chapter 15, verses 7 through 9, he's talking about abiding in His Word and abiding in Him as the vine. And by this, my Father will be glorified as you bear much fruit. That's verse 8 of John 15. In Hebrews 12, the same concept of just this production of good fruit. Even though for the moment it seems painful, it produces the good fruit of righteousness as we bear up in love and service to God with all knowledge and discernment. Good fruit is only available, though, through abiding in Christ, John 15, and through us being remade in His image. We are His workmanship for the good works that that He wants to produce in us. And finally, this is where it's headed. (laughs) This is where Paul is always headed in his letters. The letter to the Ephesians, the first chapter there, I'm going to read in just a moment a few verses from there. But he says, we want to be to the glory and praise of God. I want you to notice that as a, it's a connector from and so be. You're going to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. You're going to be filled with the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. You're going to be to the glory and praise of God with these things. But you, we can be and should be to the glory and praise of God. In Philippians 1, verse 29, he's going to say, they've been granted to suffer. But that's going to bring glory to God. And it will glorify them through their suffering as well. Uh, John 15, 8, where he talked about if they abide in the vine, they'll produce much fruit. But look at Ephesians with me. I just love the way Paul expresses over and over in this first chapter to the praise of the glory of God if we're obedient. This is what it is, starting at verse 3 through 6, Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Now move down to verse 11. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, 
having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. All that God has done, all that God is doing, all of this abounding in love more and more, all of this approval of what is excellent because we abound in knowledge and discernment with our love, all of this practice of what is good, bringing righteous fruit, is to the praise and glory of God. It is not that we are anything of ourselves, but look what God wants to make us. People who can glorify and praise Him in an acceptable way. How? What do we do? He tells us what to do. He reveals His mind and His will and says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and we'll love Him and we'll learn to love others as we do His will. What Paul prayed for the Philippians is my prayer for you, for myself. I need this so much. Please pray it for me. That my love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. That it may abound. May you have abundant love. I ask you as you think about this lesson today, how is your love? (laughs) Not in some touchy-feely way. How is your love? How is the expression of your love in fellowship among the saints here? How is the expression of your love at home among your people that, that you're in the family with? How is your fellowship? How is your expression of love in the fellowship with those that you work with, those you come in contact with on a daily basis? How is your love for God? as He is the standard that's going to govern how we love everybody else that's in our lives. Do you love Him enough to submit to His will? If you're not a Christian, it means there's something you're going to have to do. Confessing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that God sent according to His will, according to His purpose, according to what He revealed, you must accept that. You must be willing to repent of your sins. Say, God, I haven't been doing Your will, but I want to. What must I do? And as Peter said, you need to repent. Come and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive that gift of the Holy Spirit. Salvation can be yours if you're willing to do that. If you haven't done that, we'd love to help you with that. If you're listening in, you want to get in contact with us, we'd love to help you do that. If you've already done that, if you've put on Christ, but your love is not abounding, don't worry. He's got a resource that's rich and He wants to give you more. Start using it. Let it flow. Let it overflow and be abounding in it. And learn more about Him. With all knowledge and discernment, you can love even more and in better ways and in different ways than you've ever thought possible. May God make it happen. How is your love? If you would love the Lord, we're going to stand and sing a song for your encouragement as you decide to serve Him today.